Hello, listeners. This is your spoiler warning. We will be spoiling The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk and any of the other books we have read this season. Also, this book has some graphic violence, so this discussion may not be appropriate for anyone with sensitivity towards that topic. We hope for a harvest, we pray for rain, but nothing is certain. We say that the harvest will only be abundant if the crops are shared, that the rains will not come unless water is conserved and shared and respected. We believe we can continue to live and thrive only if we care for one another. This is the age of the reaper, when we inherit 5,000 years of postponed results, the fruits of our callousness toward the earth and toward other human beings. But at last we have come to understand that we are part of the earth, part of the air, the fire, and the water, as we are part of one another. Welcome to the Book Club Podcast. Today we are discussing The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. I'm Caroline, and I absolutely adore this book. Just reading it, any small bit of it, makes me happy. Um, It has a beautiful portrayal of what the world could be. But I think of all the books we've read, this book also has the greatest challenge to the readers about what must be given up and what must be reckoned with to achieve this dream. I'm Carly, and I found this book hard for those reasons and and heartbreaking. I mean, I enjoyed it. It's a beautiful book. I agree with everything you said, but because of that, I found it just kind of (laughs) hard, you know? Yeah. This book is just an open challenge to to the readers and to the society it's in. But let's let's give some some of the story here first. So the story is set in the year 2048 after a catastrophe has fractured the United States into several nations. The main characters are Maya, a woman in her 90s who first came to San Francisco in the summer of love, Madrone, a young psychic healer and her granddaughter, and Bird, her grandson who is a prisoner in the South after destroying a, after he was imprisoned following his destruction of a malfunctioning nuclear plant. Maya and Madrone live in the same house, part of a multi-generational polyamorous family. After the catastrophe, the people of San Francisco set up their city to have a sustainable economy using wind power, local agriculture, and the like. It is presented as a mostly pagan city, where the streets have been torn up for gardens and streams, where no one starves or is homeless, and where the city's defense council consists primarily of nine elderly women who listen and dream. The city recognizes the four sacred things, earth, air, fire, and water, and does not allow anyone to appropriate them or profit off them or destroy them. Maya talks to her deceased lovers, Johanna and Rio, the grandparents of Madrone, Uh, Madrone overextends herself, healing people from a new epidemic and mourning her partner, Sandy, who passed away in the previous epidemic. The Defense Council thinks the epidemics were bioengineered in preparation for an attack from the South, where the Millennialists, also known as the Stewards, are in control. Madrone is able to manipulate her patients' chi and focus energy from the earth into her patients to heal them. She calls on the goddess in many forms, including Kotliku, an Aztec mother goddess, and Tiamat, a Mesopotamian primordial goddess of the sea, to help fight the virus in the spirit realm. The fight leaves her weak, but most of the remaining patients recover. 
and Maya comes to Madrone to bring her back to corporeal life. Maya and Madrone don't know what happened to Bird, only that he disappeared 10 years ago. Bird wakes up in prison, having no memory of where he is and how he got there. He uses his witch's ability to break out of prison with his friends High John and Little John. High John goes back to his people, who are leading a rebellion against the Millennialist. In other words, the theocratic Christian group who controls the South. Bird and Little John find a community of so-called monsters who have birth defects from the nuclear plant that Bird destroyed. He helps heal them and agrees to come back to teach them how to heal or to send someone who can. Bird also learns that the South is planning to invade San Francisco. Bird makes the long journey on foot back to his home, where he struggles with the trauma of his time in the South. After several months of rest, Madrone travels south to fulfill Bird's promise. She learns that the Millennialist government gives their soldiers medications to make their immune systems weak. She creates a process for quarantining the soldiers who defect so that their immune systems can recover. She also meets a group of women who commune with bees to practice a different form of healing. They teach her how to heal with the bee magic. Madrone travels with Hai John. While there, she helps the rebellion by teaching people about the four sacred things, which are air, fire, water, and earth, in contrast to the millennialist four purities, moral purity, family purity, racial purity, and spiritual purity. Back in San Francisco, the community plans to meet the invading army with nonviolence and to tell them there's a place here at our table for you if you want it. They will do this because overturning violence is a shot at overturning the 5,000-year history of the Earth and the start of something new. When the army invades, San Francisco offers only nonviolent resistance. The army kills people who won't get out of their way. Bird is captured and tortured. He only agrees to help the army when a young girl is threatened, and from then on he appears to help the Southern Army. Uh, the army cuts off the water, uh, but they are divided racially and by class, and individual soldiers start wondering what they're fighting for. When he is being tortured, and as a result of being tortured, Bird tells the army about San Francisco's secret weapon, which they don't really have, but he claims the secret weapon is San Francisco's relationship with the dead. Bird paints this as demonic because, quite frankly, he's trying to scare them, and he's desperate from being tortured. But when he relays this to the council, they realize that this is useful and they start haunting the army by having people, living people, approach individual soldiers and tell the soldiers about the people that the soldiers killed. One soldier, 09, is the subject of this and he loses his mind and shoots the first person who does this to him. Then another from the same family takes that person's place. He shoots that one. Then a third. He finally throws away his gun when the five-year-old from that family steps into the place of the family members he has already killed. He defects from the army, and the San Franciscans take him in and start healing him from the immune-suppressing drugs. He is the first one, but other soldiers begin to defect after that. Then the army decides to use Bird, who they still have in custody. They drug him and put him on stage, telling him to shoot Maya, his grandmother. He almost does because he is so afraid that she will be tortured if he doesn't. But Rio's ghost tells Bird he has nothing to be ashamed of. He met a force that's stronger than himself. Rio says, force makes us all feel shame. Madrone, who is watching, tries to reach out to Bird with her healing magic. She feels the ghosts of the dead and the history of violence. And she puts that power into bee magic. And a bee stings Bird. With that, he has an epiphany that the real power is reflected in nature, 
which is offering itself and asking nothing in return. And he identifies this as the real gift, love, the fifth sacred thing. He lays down the gun, choosing to be killed rather than kill for the army. At that point, the army turns on itself and is defeated. Many of the soldiers stay in San Francisco. Maya, who is 99 years old, seems to be dying. She starts thinking about other places in the world that perhaps are untouched by pollution, places in the ocean where dolphins frolic. The book closes on her hopes and dreams. She would believe, she had always needed to believe, that at daybreak in some warm ocean, seahorses still rose to greet their mates with a circular dance. She had never seen them, but she would go and find them, stranger than any mythical beast, the living creatures of the ancient, unwounded earth. Wow. <laughs> yes. This book, unlike, say, the last one, seems to put forward the idea that there's 5,000 years worth of corruption, pollution, and oppression that need to be fixed. And I think that's in contrast to some of the other books we've read, like Psalm for the Wild Built, which didn't directly you know, correspond to Earth history, but it was pretty well implied that things there started to go wrong during the factory age, which I took to be essentially the Industrial Revolution. And it's been kind of the same with some of our other books, like you know, looking backward to the period where things started going wrong, it seems to be either you know, 50 years ago or maybe 250, but somewhere in that range. But this book, this book is saying, no, it's the last 5,000 years have been a history of violence and oppression and mutilation of the earth. So I think, I think the real question from this book is, do we need to solve all 5,000 years of history in order to have the society that's pictured here? Just a light question, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, there is a real connection to the past. Maya is always thinking about her past, and she has been a revolutionary since the, the 1960s. And, you know, it's her generation that has created this city for her grandchildren, for Bird and Madrone. And I found it really interesting how she was so upset that they had this fight in front of them and talked to her her ghost friend, Johanna, and talk about how they had worked so hard to build the city so that their kids and grandkids wouldn't have to fight so hard. And I thought that was really interesting to include this sort of sadness of essentially she succeeded, but she lived long enough to see the next challenges for what she had built. And there's a real pain and grief in that. Yeah, there is a moment halfway through the book where it sort of tr transitions from at least what I felt as the reader, oh, like this is amazing, the society they're de describing, they've achieved so much, to a realization that it's far from perfect, it's still ongoing, the next generation will have their own problems, it's not solved. Right. So Maya has her own past because she has such a long life. She has her own past to reconcile. And then Madrone has to reconcile. And Bird has similar memories. Bird and Madrone both saw their parents killed in violent uprisings when they were children. And mm -hmm. that, that does kind of haunt them. So Madrone has to confront that. She has a very powerful experience floating in the ocean <laughs> where she like she's connected to the goddess and in, in the ocean you know it was i love how like it's all of these names for the same goddess and through through many different religions like real religions that have actually existed you know and but she connects to the sea mother goddess 
And that helps her connect to the memory of her own mother and confront that very traumatic memory. So she's confronting her personal past too. And Bird loses his memory and has to gain it back. I don't know. There's a lot going on there with like your own personal history. You know, in that last moment, that final climax of the story, Madrone, when she's watching Bird and she's trying to reach out to him, she has this thought that, you know, with all her powers and all her skills, she could only watch and not shield herself from the pain as she no longer hid from her own memories. Like trying to hide from the pain of this moment is somehow dishonoring it that and and she continues to take in you know she's drawing on this history to try and and fix this heal this issue that's happening in this this violent conflict and she has a recognition that she has to take in all of it she has to take in not just the blessings from her ancestors and the blessings from the earth she has to take in the pain of it too and i i'm get you know i'm making the leap of like the pain of death and the pain of suffering that it all she can't just take one piece of it. She has to take it all in together to be whole. And mm-hmm. so, and that's when they're talking about 5,000 years taking this history. And at one point, Bird is like, I can't, that's too much for me. I can't take on the responsibility <laughs> for healing 5,000 years. It's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot in what you just said. And in particular, this idea of hiding from pain. I mean, part of what Bird and Madrone both decide at the end is to not hide from pain and future suffering. And for Bird, that means letting go of the illusion of control. He cannot control whether or not Maya is tortured or dies. And in letting that go, you know, he's able to act ethically. So I think there's also a thread in here about trying to avoid pain and trying to have control and what that leads you to. Um, and I think perhaps in some ways the the culture in the South is an indicator of that. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. I'm not ready to go there yet and talk about the South just yet. This oh, idea. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. Right. Uh, but back on the topic of, you know, 5,000 years, right? It makes sense. I mean, probably in a number of ways, but right, like violence, sexual oppression have been around a long time. You know, and maybe we can find except exceptions, societies that didn't seem to have that or didn't seem to conduct themselves that way, but they're the minority and the exception, right? Right. And so I know Bird at one point acknowledges that, you know, he has ancestors who have been oppressed and have been enslaved. Right. But then he also has ancestors who were the enslavers and were the oppress- oppressors. And I thought that was like, we are inheritors of of all of it. Which I'm having a hard time making the connection of being able to acknowledge that, but then also have faith that it can be healed. Right. That's the issue because it's so big. When you start talking in terms of millennia of pain and suffering, how, how can you meet that with a proportional amount of hope? Yeah. Can we? Well, so and it's it's similar to like nonviolence too, when you're talking about Bird recognizing that he doesn't have control. And he's willing to die rather than kill Maya. An acceptance that his death wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like, it's not as bad as it is his die. Sorry. <laughs> um, there's, so- there's something in that, um, that accepting that your own death isn't the worst thing that could happen. Or the worst, you know, like. Isn't even the worst thing that could happen to you. Right. 
And it's something that I think Lily Fong, the head of the Defense Council early in, when they're talking about using nonviolence, and there's one character who I really connected with named Cress, who is like a skeptic on this whole nonviolence approach mm-hmm. and wants to fight back. Cress had some good points. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. He had good points. Yeah. But Lily, you know, as a very old, wise woman, she's like, well, then we will die. And it's like, I think that's a sort of thing you have you that you have to go through a lot to come to to learn that to accept that so it makes sense to me that it would come from a very old woman who's been meditating about these things for many decades but 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 when you're trying to convince the rest of your city that no 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 i swear this is the right way yes some of us will die and some people they do die and it's it's not nice and it's not pretty no. and it's not there's there's no escaping it but somehow that's still the happier ending. <laughs> so, Yes, that is hard to really fundamentally agree with, right? Like I can say those words and I can see the reasoning. If I sit here and I really think hard and put myself in the frame of mind of everything has a season and a cycle to everything and particularly start thinking about how the earth continues and those sort of soothing thoughts, I could maybe form the sentiment that my own death doesn't matter that much in the face of that. I don't know how long I could feel that. Especially when it's not a quick conflict either. It it takes time and people have time to lose their resolve and to be real to start to grieve and really grieve and not not want to lose more. Like that's yeah. the part of this book that is hard. Like even though there's so much magic involved that is sort of supernatural, it still feels very real. Like there are just very real consequences to people's decisions. I mean, what if it takes another 5,000 years? I I don't know. I mean, what what do I care what happens 5,000 years from now, right? Like, I don't know. (laughs) But on the other hand, I mean, if I was convinced my life had that sort of meaning, right? Like I'm slowly bending the arc of the world towards healing and justice that's a very inspiring idea. But what if it takes 5,000 years, right? It's one thing to say, what if it happens in the next generation or the one after? But what if it takes 5,000 years? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's what Maya is confronting a lot of the time, I think that because you don't get a visitor from 5,000 years in the future saying like, yes, good job, you did it. (laughs) You know, you have to have (laughs) faith. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of talk in this book about how the world is still very damaged, even now, 20, I think it's 20 years after whatever this catastrophe was. And, you know, it's very clear the world to some extent fell out of the industrial age, but the damage that was done is still around, right? A lot of people in the city are dedicating their lives to cleaning the water. There's like a long description of how the mussels, you know, like the little oysters or whatever in the bay are, some of them are toxic. And so they're breeding new strains that can filter out the toxins and um, like this damage is still ongoing, right? Even though this society, at least right here in San Francisco, has changed. Right. It makes sense. Like, I, you know, I don't, hundreds of years of, of polluting and extracting the earth, that doesn't get fixed in a short period of time. I think that's also different from the other solar punk books we've read that wherever they start, kind of assume a fresh start at some point, And then they tell the story from there. Yeah, I mean, so we're not free from a history. I wonder if talking about the Seder part would help us 
think about yeah. how they're confronting history because <laughs> that part was really intense. So Maya is Jewish or, or was raised Jewish and she has a lot of memories of, of Seder. And so they do have a Seder in this book. It's so funny, like the person hosting the Seder talks about like what the significance of each of the foods is. And, and just to remind people that Seder is the Passover meal and the Jewish tradition, each of the foods has a particular uh, symbolism related to the Passover story. And so one of the hosts is like, you know, here's what the Jewish tradition says these these mean, but really we here's how we connect it to earth, air, fire, and water are four sacred things. And Maya's like, I don't think my Jewish ancestors like that very much. <laughs> like, and then part of the Seder is singing a song that is inviting Elijah to join them. And they open the door and invite Elijah to join the meal. And Maya's like, wait a minute, we can't, I don't want Elijah here. Like, he's an asshole. I don't want him. <laughs> and, and one of the other guests, Sam, is like, I always remember my family singing this song. And I like, it's a part of the holiday for me. And it's, you know, so like for Sam, singing this song is, is just about nostalgia and remembering his family and his childhood and the tradition of singing the song. But for Maya, it has real power to bring Elijah to the meal, and she does not want him there. And I thought that was a really interesting conflict to have. Yeah. And to be clear, she doesn't want him there because there's a story about Elijah causing 400 priests of, of Baal to be put to death. And so there's a conflict between welcoming in Elijah in the currently very tolerant pagan society that you know yeah. they're in now in San Francisco right and so she calls that out and they end up coming up with a compromise where i think they sing the song but then what they invite in are the ghosts of people who've been oppressed right mhm mm yeah so that's just providing that context that's what they decide to do what were you saying about the song they use it its value is in the nostalgia factor for sam like sam says I just like the song. Is that a crime? It brings me happy memories of my childhood. The whole family sitting around the Seder table fighting like we are now. And before that, Maya had said, you're talking about singing an invocation, opening a door to a spirit and feeding him. To me, that's an act of magic. I think I'm a step behind because I just got it. <laughs> like we're, what you were saying, we're talking about the past and you're saying, here's this example, the Seder. To someone, it's just enjoyable, but to someone else, Maya, we need to really interrogate the roots of it and what it means and change it so that it reflects our current values. Right. Well, and then and then the next part of that is that night Maya has a dream where Elijah comes to her and she like lets him have it. She's like, she says, for hundreds of generations, Jewish women have invited you in each year to eat the sacred foods prepared by their own hands, the egg and the greens, the salt water of tears, and the sweet charo set, the unleavened matzah, bread of affliction, we call it. Yet when have you ever lightened so much as a crumb of our affliction? And I'll tell you something else. Those foods are the real carriers of the tradition, the sacred mysteries, not what comes out of your men's mouths, the words and the stories and the endless arguments and explanations, but what we women provide to put into your mouth, the taste of pain, the taste of spring, the taste of hope and new beginnings. Oh my God. I love Maya so much. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, she's so awesome. Awesome. Just let them have it. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but Elijah says, yes, you're right. 
And yes, for centuries, women have doing this. And maybe I have recognized that and I have changed. And now I am fit to be invited. And Maya's like, well, crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've had all of this anger and rage towards Elijah. I think, and then, and this dream is what leads her to go to the council and suggest nonviolence with, for the, as an approach to the South. Mm-hmm. Like, I can feel that frustration of, I have an enemy, I've been fighting my enemy, and I have this righteous anger. Mm-hmm. And then what if your enemy capitulates? What do you do with that righteousness, you know? When he says, I mean, what happens to the enemy who's invited to share the feast? Does the enemy not transform, right? And so if you really believe that and someone sits down at your table, you have to let that anger go. You have to transform yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, you- that's right. Yeah. Oh God, that sorry. I gotta calm down. I'm so excited. I know. <laughs> that I mean I mean I feel so righteous with those words that Maya spoke. And then it's like, no, it's time to put that away. It's time to invite your enemy to your table. And that's that's what they do. Those are the words that they say to the soldiers who have killed their loved ones. And mm-hmm. so I think if we're talking about healing five thousand years of trauma, of of abuse, of pain, it's not as easy to accept that that can be healed, I guess. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. I agree. How do you accept that? You have to want to, I guess. And maybe that's one of the solar punk themes, that people's beliefs change when they're face-to-face with the consequences. And maybe, you know, they in the story are standing at a moment of history where they can say, I think accurately, you know, violence has never done any good. You know, we've got the data at this point. We need something new. We can see around us how the earth has been destroyed and poisoned and polluted. And we know enough history to know that violence met with violence just tends to grow one way or another. So maybe there's an argument for it, but also to some extent, this isn't susceptible to arguments, right? This is hope. This is belief we're talking about. Right. It's it's faith for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Madrone repeats over and over to herself, we become what we do. And that's she says that a lot when she's traveling through the South and learning about how people live there. I mean, this book gives us a lot because it gives us the sort of utopian view of the city, but then gives us a good contrast with the South. Like we can see in the story, the full results of not believing what our main characters believe and not living in this way. Yeah. Let's talk about the South. So brief description of the millennialists or the stewards. It seems that at some point they were pretty much Christian fundamentalists. It sounds like with that emphasis on sexual purity, which is also an emphasis on racial purity when you get to the bottom of it. Various crises happened and allowed them to consolidate power. Now they own everything and they sit on top of a highly stratified society where even the water is owned and you know everyone on the bottom is thirsty and dirty all the time because there's water simply is not available. The surrounding environment has been stripped bare in a number of ways, both deliberately and then as an unintended consequence of various actions. What I also think interesting is that they are called the stewards, which is a a term that appears in the Old Testament and the New, actually. 
there are some Christians who view that as establishing man's relationship to the earth, that he's a steward over it and should take care of it, but like kind of in the way you take care of something that is put, that you own and is supposed to serve you. And they're not doing a very good job of taking care of it. So I kind of wonder if she's pointing out the contrast between, oh yeah, I'll take care of this thing I own versus the earth is sacred and I would die to keep it safe, right? Those are very different, but they can be united at least if, like, in a shallow way under a general umbrella of environmentalism of, oh, take care of the earth. Sure, why not? But truly, they're very different. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the South? Well, the most striking thing is they describe how this millennialist Christian sect split from the previous Christian churches by saying that Jesus was not God made flesh because God as spirit would never would never become flesh. Right. Never incorporealize. Right. Because it's sort of defiling in some way. So they say God is always has been and always will be spirit. I thought that was really interesting that their division is about spirit. And this book is called The Fifth Sacred Thing. And we're told that it's fifth sacred thing is spirit. And so how different, like supposedly their whole, their whole faith is about spirit and the purity of spirit, but, but it's so different from what, right. what we see in the North about, like you said, sacred. Well, there the spirit is never embodied. In fact, there's a dichotomy. Anything that is embodied and that is fleshy is dirty, lower, sinful, right? Which, you know, is a dichotomy you see in certain many strands of Christianity now. This is an extension of existing types of thought, right? And if you see things that are worldly as dirty, yeah, how could you take care of the earth? Mm. Yes, yes. Well, and they see your spirit, your soul as something that can be lost. Like you can do something in such a way that you lose your soul. And once you lose your soul, you lose basically your your autonomy as a person. Like Madrone... Madrone and Bird have mixed heritage, Mexican, African-American, Maya's a white Jewish, like they're all mixed and they speak different languages in San Francisco and they speak a lot of Spanish, uh, Madrone and Bird in particular. And Madrone goes south and she says some phrase in Spanish and they're like, don't speak Spanish or they will, you will lose your soul or like you will lose, you will lose your right to claim you have a soul. <laughs> for- right. And then once that happens, you can be imprisoned, enslaved used in all sorts of terrible ways. It's really very convenient, right? Yeah. For the powers in charge to have a way to determine that some people just don't have any worth and therefore don't have any rights and et cetera, right? It's convenient, right. actually. Right. And so, you know, the the declaration that's at the front of the book of the city about how the four sacred things cannot be owned, they belong freely to everyone and cannot be owned or profited from, and then the fifth sacred thing is spirit. It's it, that allows spirit to thrive. So if you start from the opposite perspective, where you can own earth, air, fire, and water, then does that in the south it leads you to be able to own spirit or you know people in another way? Like right. it shifts. Certain people are able to own other people, and it starts with owning the elements, owning the yeah. water. I think you're right. Another thing that stood out to me is that somewhere in the book, they're talking about the fifth sacred thing. And they say, someone, I think Bird says, sometimes the fifth sacred thing appears 
as human or in a human form. But not always. It's sometimes also just sort of out in the world, like this overarching presence infusing everything. Whereas the souls that the millennialists talk about seem like locked up in individual people. Yeah. And there's so much, I mean, I didn't even realize it because I don't think they use the word spirit so much, but like every time a drone is like drawing on the earth or drawing on gods or goddesses to help her heal, she's infusing herself with spirit. She's drawing spirit into her. And that communication between her and her patients, that sharing of energy and moving of energy to heal like that's that's a movement of spirit. It wasn't explicitly said, but I think that's what's going on. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. That is another example of spirit, not the spirit, but just spirit moving out and about in between people and things in the world. So at the end, Bird calls the fifth sacred thing love. And I think so I want to talk about sex because in this book, it's there's like plenty of it. <laughs> there's plenty of sex. And so Madrone and Bird are part of a polyamorous. There's three other partners in their group, two women yes, and a man. at least. And Sandy was part of it too, and he passed away before the story starts. Maya had relationships with both Johanna and Rio when they were alive, and others. I think she had other partners too. But mm. one thing that was interesting, like Madrone and Bird, when they're traveling in the South, they find sexual partners, and they, they each say at different times that having sex – with someone from the South was about bodies and they missed that deeper connection. Mm -hmm. And then there's a scene of polyamorous love where there is a very deep soul connection and it is yeah. Yeah. somewhat healing for bird. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It is very much presented that way. Um, it's presented as an act that's infused with spirit and also very fleshy. I mean, there's plenty of talk about desire and, <laughs> you know, the what and why and how, you know, it, it's not just a spiritual practice. It's clearly both, right? Like some of these descriptions are quite uh, detailed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this sort of thing that wanting that that spiritual connection through physical affection and the fact that it was missing with people from the South and they didn't even know what they were missing, right? Like they didn't even realize. Right. Had no idea. Yeah. And that reminded me a little bit of Ecotopia, this I, this need to like, like, you know, look at me, I'm here, I'm a human, and be with me in this moment, you know, that sort of connection. And then- I do think the sex is presented in this book, obviously much more emphasized the spiritual aspect. Like they talk about, they talk about it as though it were a ritual. Sometimes it deliberately is, but sometimes it's just in how it's described. And ritual meaning something that reaffirms your values and connects you to something larger while still being very fleshy, right? Right. Well, yeah, I think that's a, I mean, so as someone who grew up in a Christian house, Protestant Christian, recognizing that these material fleshy things, not just sex, but like also the food of Seder, for example, like there's a connection to the sacred through the body and feeling through your body, your physicality, and connecting with the physicality of other people, other things. Yeah, I I feel you on that. Having been raised similarly, I think there was a bedrock belief that the more abstract something was, you know, the less worldly, the less fleshy, the less concrete and immediate, the better it was. Like the more moral, the more intellectual, the stronger. Yeah, you know, whatever you want to, whatever the specific adjective, it was better. Yeah. 
we've seen polyamory in these stories, and I'm wondering how much of that is going to be going forward in, in our solar punk. Like, how much is polyamory part of solar punk in this idea? I think it's a very like I haven't seen it explicitly laid out. Like, why is polyamory part of these better futures where we're better connected to the earth? Like, you know, I think there's an implication that being closer to the earth, being more fully human leads to polyamory, which, okay, that's a, that's a hypothesis, but I haven't seen it really fully explained in these books so far. I think part of it is that there aren't the same underlying ideals of control and the underlying background of isolation that impact so many monogamous relationships. Uh, You know, certainly not all, that's certainly not a given, but a lot of them are impacted and maybe even twisted in a deep way by the desire to like kind of own another person, to have one person that's just yours. There are good versions of this. Like <laughs> I am happily monogamously married, but you can't deny that there's some there's some bad ideas floating around in, you know, certain exclusive relationships and how we think about them. Right. Yeah. So maybe there's ideas of ownership in there, control. Um both like control of your own desires, control of theirs. Uh, and maybe, it, you know, polyamory appears in these stories a lot because the underlying values have changed, right? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I thought it was interesting. Katie is a woman that Madrone meets in the South and is like the first person that she feels like a real friendship with. And Katie is pregnant with High John's baby. And when Madrone and High John go out on a on a mission, you know, Madrone is really upset and stressed out, and she and High John comfort each other and have sex. And I know Madrone in that moment, she thinks to herself, "Why would my friend Katie, who cares about me, deny me this comfort in this moment?" And I'm like, "Oh, poor Madrone. <laughs> oh, she does not know. <laughs> no." And and High John says, "Well, you're not going to tell Katie." Madrone's like, "I can't keep it a secret from her. Like, I didn't." I wouldn't have done it if I had known it would hurt her and hi, John. Like, so of course she tells Kate, she's not going to lie to Katie. Yeah. And Katie gets mad at her and like refuses to be her friend anymore. And and Katie says to Madrone that Madrone is like an animal because she just follows her impulses. And I thought, I thought that was fascinating. I mean, first of all, is, is being like an animal a bad thing in Madrone's worldview. I'm not so sure. Definitely not. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But in Katie's it is. Right. And I thought it was fascinating, this like conflict, two people who care about each other, Katie and Madrone with these different ideas about how to express love. And Katie is, is really upset. And I mean, I identify more with Katie in this scenario personally, (laughs) Katie, who is fighting the stewards like she does not agree with their worldview but she still has this sense of monogamy it hurts her that madrone would sleep with high john with her partner so i don't know i think i'm still trying to figure out why that fascinates me so much this conflict between madrone and katie well part of what's fascinating to me is madrone just has no idea right she's been raised in this other culture where this sort of thing was never questioned right i mean it's a culture clash and it's a fascinating way to set up this interaction because, you know, the whole story is told from the point of view of people like Madrone and Bird um, who are immersed in this culture. And so you see it from their point of view and it's like, well, I don't know, to me, it made sense 
even though, you know, obviously I am not from that culture in a number of ways. Yeah, it really puts the onus on Katie to explain why she should, you know, why her viewpoint is correct. And, you know, Starhawk doesn't spend a ton of time on this, right? It's like a couple pages, maybe. But it's a pretty good example of the culture clash between North and South. Yeah, I mean, Madrome gets into a few confusing sexual situations, like with Sarah. Sarah, like, develops this whole fantasy about Madrone and, like, comes to her a couple times. He's like, are you okay with me finding another lover? And Madrone's like, what I don't. What are you talking about? Like, yes, of course. <laughs> like, why are you even bothering me with this? <laughs> she has to, like, find patience to, like, be kind to Sarah in that moment. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, I mean, in the South, purity is so important that, yeah, there is a lot of weight placed on sex, but it's a weight that's not, it's not that same power that that the Northerners experience with sex. Like, it's not powerful, but it's a weight somehow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the things. So Sarah and Madrone have, like, one sexual encounter, and then Sarah thinks they're, she essentially thinks they're beholden to each other in some way, and that's why she keeps coming to Madrone and saying things like, did it hurt your feelings that I, you know, we never, we never had sex again? Or does it hurt your feelings to see me with my new partner? And Madrone is just, you know, baffled, honestly, but trying to be polite. And she's like, no, it's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, um, I think this like, because Beth and Kate, no, sorry, Sarah and Katie come North at some eventually and start to integrate into the North. And I wonder how that will go. There's also O9 we mentioned in the summary mm-hmm. who is renamed River. And there was, some, you know, at the end, I was wondering how this was going to happen with this, with the final <laughs> ending of the, of this conflict that, so Bird lays down his gun and then River, formerly O9, jumps up and takes the gun and the other soldiers who've defected essentially take up the guns and subdue the invading army. And it's like the nonviolence worked to win over the soldiers who could defeat with violence. Is that too simple? I think that's a little of an overstatement because of the numbers involved. So it seemed like most of the soldiers were won over to nine violence, like the vast numerical majority. But then at the end, it was a showdown between them, the ordinary soldiers, and the elite guard that operated around the general. So my impression is that it was this small percentage that was never going to defect and was not persuaded at all by what this city had to offer. And yes, it's true. There was violence between that group and O9's unit. But it seemed like a lot of it for the majority of soldiers, they just defected, left, disappeared into the city. That was kind of my impression. I don't know if that makes it better or worse. It is still true that it it ended because someone was violent, right? Yeah. It's curious how these folks are actually going to integrate because like polyamory, there are many, many cultural mores that are probably not even conscientiously thought of but they just i mean they're just part of the way things work and then i mean it's true of every culture but there's one like tolerating many different languages tolerating many different religions yeah i mean how are all these people gonna be integrated and acculturated to the culture here which is crucial to its way of life right Mm -hmm. i don't know 
or like what it, there's one meeting where they're trying to invoke all the gods like people keep standing up to invoke gods and someone's like can we just like invoke them all at once because we're gonna be here all night just invoking gods <laughs> so there's some moments of real humor in this book and many of them i think are in the meetings because there are so many meetings and it doesn't drag on in the book i mean you know, Starhawk is a good writer. She doesn't put you through that. But she does make it clear that the price of this sort of cooperative and democratic lifestyle is a lot of meetings. Right. <laughs> a lot of meetings and a lot of hours spent, you know, cross-legged on the ground listening to someone standing up and saying their piece, right? Right. Yeah. And as lovely as the society is, not every person in it is lovable all the time. Oh, yeah, definitely not. I mean, there's annoying personalities. There's just kind of grating personalities. There's boring people. I mean, you know, they're all they're all still people. One last thought I'm sort of working on, and it's back to what we talked about earlier when we started about accepting pain, both yours and historical pain. And it's just sticking out to me how much of this book is about torture. I mean, Mm. brutal torture. Everything with Bird, right? He's tortured for the 10 years he's a prisoner in the South. And then those wounds continue to plague him as he continues to the North. And then once the army evades in the North, he is captured again and tortured. It's a lot of time spent thinking about how someone would stand up to suffering. And I don't know, just because it's such a big percentage of the book, is she making a a broader point about how you expect to handle suffering in your own life? I mean, stuff that falls short of torture. Like, What is the point of making... So there's three main characters. 90% of one of them, the storyline is about torture, right? Like, yeah. Well, at the end, I thought it was really interesting. The ghost of Rio says to Bird... You, you don't have to be ashamed. You, you're just a person and you met a force that was more powerful. And that's okay. And here, ashamed of breaking under torture specifically because he did and he's ashamed of it. So sorry, go on. Yeah. So force makes us all feel shame, which we talked a little bit about shame before because I think that's really interesting is like pointing at, you know, where people feel shame or think you should feel shame that tells you the sort of the outlines of what society, what the societal rules are. <laughs> so, yes, right. And he, I, it's, it seems like if we if we take that equation, shame tells you where the societal rules are and force makes us all feel shame. It seems like force is antithetical to society. Or society, some of them, enacts itself through force. If you are being shamed, if you feel shame, that's how you can tell you're being forced to do something. Oh, you're being forced to live according to the rules of a society and that that you're not 100% in agreement with at that moment. Right. Or that part of you is not in agreement with, which I think is can be the trickier thing. I don't think that comes up in this book, but uh, and maybe it doesn't come up in the others, but certainly in my life, I there have been things I agreed with, like overarching principles that I still didn't want to follow or didn't want to follow at that moment or part of me didn't want to follow. You, follow. And I had felt shame about that. And so, you know, that's not to imply it's always wrong to feel shame. I think we said that last time. Some kinds of shame are good and productive. But I don't think that's what Hawk means. I don't think that's, I'm not sure she would feel that way about the shame. What do you think? 
Okay, just to compare Madrone again, does Madrone feel shame for hurting Katie's feelings? I don't know that that's, I don't know that's what she feels. I think she's really sad that she hurt her friend and regrets it. And she's like, I even taught him a few things. If you sleep with him again, you might enjoy it more. (laughs) It's like, that's not helping. (laughs) No, she definitely doesn't feel shame. I think maybe Starhawk is talking about the more corrosive kind of shame. You know, maybe what we'd call non-productive guilt or, you know, something that just sort of disables instead of leading to anything. Yeah, I mean... Bird had had no good choices. He was a prisoner. He was being tortured. People he cared about were were imprisoned and being tortured, you know, and that powerlessness. And yes, he gave in. And I think Rio's comforting him by by saying you had no good choices. You did what you could. And it doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. You came up against a force stronger than you. That's what Rio says. Yeah. Which I think in a lot of contexts or in a lot of cultures wouldn't be comforting. You know, I think there's this idea that I've certainly sometimes believed that we're supposed to be stronger than anything, like able Mm. to stand up to anything, able to take it. And Rio's just like, no, that's not true. There's plenty of things that are stronger than you. (laughs) Yeah. It's an interesting dichotomy against Madrone, who seems so powerful, like everything she comes up against she conquers and seems to gain more power from it. <laughs> so True. I feel bad for Bird, but yeah, because Madrone seems to offer the exact opposite. Like, I don't think anyone else feels shame in this book. I don't know if I noticed it. They certainly don't use shame as a f- corrective force at all in this city. Well, wait, that's not entirely true. At one point, Madrone is asked when she's in this house, she's asked something like, well, why don't people just steal or something like that? And she says, well, you know, their friends wouldn't be very impressed with them and they would, essentially, they would feel social shame. But other than that, which is kind of presented in the abstract and not as something that actually happens, everything, every way that the South or that the North has of doing things is presented as just kind of logical and enjoyable. Right. I mean, there is some mention of like Bird when he returns, he he doesn't just have the physical injuries and scars. He has like, psychic scars and he closes himself off in a way it seemed to me that at one point madrone was like we can see each other like we know when they're lying (laughs) you know what i mean like (laughs) if someone tried to steal they wouldn't be able to keep it a secret because everyone's so connected and involved with each other that they would know like if you had a secret and so there's there's no like hiding in that but i don't know i i don't know that there's necessarily something wrong with wanting secrets or privacy. You know what I mean? So like, I don't know that that's true for every single person. I can imagine there are plenty of people who really just take joy in knowing things that other people don't. And I don't think that that's morally wrong, (laughs) you know? Right. I mean, this is certainly a culture that is more prone to large group shared everything, but I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're not allowed to have private time. Yeah. It's just our characters are very not private with each other. Yeah, very true. Uh, Do you want to talk about genre themes? Sure. So I think a theme that we've definitely seen before, albeit handled different ways, is how to handle violence. You know, what is the solution? And remember in Ecotopia, we had the war games that sort of drained off that energy. uh, And that was overall sort of utilitarian. Like it was bloody and people were injured, but far fewer than were injured. 
if they had let people just have those violent impulses and be out in society. Here, there is a, what I feel like is a more direct answer, but a far more intimidating and demanding one, which is nonviolence. Right. But if someone is not able to integrate, they can go live with the wild boar people and the wild boar people go hunt boars and they're allowed in the city once a year to sell their meat. (laughs) I was like, oh, that's That's very convenient to have these wild boar people who just take all your cast offs. Uh, Another theme that we've seen again and again is the importance of one's relationship to nature, that 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 is really centered in these stories. And here it is the center. I mean, it is the sacred center of one's life. Yeah. Okay. So open display of emotions and public display of what you'd call private moments. Can you tell me some examples of that? Remind me in the story of that. So that's what I think we were talking about just a moment ago. This society, like many of the other ones we've seen, has lots of people living together in one house. Nobody lives off by themselves. People are just constantly around. There are a lot of relationships. Um, I mean, there's a couple of moments with Bird where he is recently returned from the South and clearly struggling. And people are just around him all the time, sort of prodding him and urging him to get it out, like, say it, tell us what happened. Um, And it's effective in the story, but it is very pushy (laughs) and communal, right? I think it's interesting that that's a theme that seems to go along with these other more overtly solar punk themes. So I like how that keeps coming up. Yeah, it makes me wonder if like giving up isolation, how much privacy do you have to give up to give up isolation? That seems like a cost. If we were moving into a better society, Mm -hmm. that's something I would want to think about. What's the trade-off between a strong community and a loss of privacy? Yeah. It's the tipping point. You know, other themes we've seen, obviously, plenty of futuristic technology. I, I don't think we really talked about it in this episode, but the the city has some sort of futuristic crystal technology that essentially, it sounds like the crystals have auras and that's essentially the internet. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're energetic. Yeah, right. they have energy. And if you come to them with the wrong energy, they will not give you the information you want. So like- Right. <laughs> they won't operate this- under stress. <laughs> right. <laughs> Any other themes you noticed? Yeah, I mean, there's a moment where Bird is is walking north and he's left his fellow inmates who broke out behind. And he just like is able to like climb a hill or something and finally like see the ocean and have the sun shine on his skin. And it it has a real healing effect on him. And I was wondering if that just the concept of of nature, of sunshine and ocean and fresh air, like having this this amplified effect on on a person is that is that a part of solar punk regenerative effect yeah i think that's been a theme and honestly that's been part of why these books are so pleasant to read because there's so many descriptions of nature <laughs> yes and gardening and yeah i love the gar- anything with the gardening i'm i'm, I'm there for yeah. it <laughs> yeah uh, um anything else no um final thoughts I still I th- love this book. Every yeah. time I read it, I adore it. Yeah, yeah I um, I think it's a it's a, it's clear ab- with the trade offs. Like there, are, it's clear laying out many different trade offs in place. Like not just, I I like that it 
it gives it feels real in that way. And I like that it gives us that that reality that it's not as there's not a simple solution or or even simple solutions require deeper change within ourselves, you know? Yeah, that's what I really love about this book. It has all the pleasing images and cool ideas that I like in solar punk and but it it's also has this ballast of what would that mean? What would the sacrifices be? What would you need to believe and hope for? And so it just has a depth to it that I just keep coming back to again and again. Yeah. Listeners, what did you think of The Fifth Sacred Thing? Have you read any other books by Starhawk? What do you think about solar punk, utopias, dystopias, magic? Let us know by recording a voice memo and emailing it to openingquestion at gmail.com. You can also complete the feedback form on our website at bookclubpod.com. We will read your responses and play your voice memos on our feedback episode at the end of the season. Our next book discussion will be about Suncatcher, Seven Days in the Sky by Aaliyah G. Read it with us. We'll release that episode in two weeks. You can get your copy by using the affiliate link in our show notes. Also subscribe to our Substack at bookclubpod.substack.com. The Book Club Podcast is produced by me, Carly Jackson, and Caroline Gorman. Music and audio editing by Alex Marcus. Thanks for listening.